And welcome back to another episode of Two Nobodies. I, of course, am the lesser nobody, and my co-host and patriarch and foremost nobody, Rupesh, joins us. And today we have a real treat for you, Dr. Lenore Newman. Uh, she's an expert in agricultural technology, and she holds a Canada Research Chair in Food Security and Environment at the University of the Fraser Valley in beautiful Abbotsford, right on Vancouver's doorstep. Uh, Dr. Newman is also the director of the Food and Agriculture Institute at, at UFV, and is a member of the Royal Society of Canada's New College. She holds a PhD in environmental studies from, from York University, and she has written two books, Speaking in Cod Tongues, A Canadian Culinary Journey, and the award-winning, the Taste Canada Silver Award winner, Lost Feast. So, uh, Dr. Newman, we are so happy to have you. Thanks for joining us. Really glad to be here with you today. Perfect. Um, so I spent a bit of time in uh, Chilliwack. I lived there for two years, which is just down the road from Abbotsford. Um, and I used to always go to Cultus Lake. Do you ever frequent uh, Cultus Lake? <laughs> oh, every now and then, yeah. It's a lovely <laughs> place to go have a little picnic up in the mountains. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Um, so I kind of want to start off. I think that we um, had invited you on after reading some of your articles around vertical farming. Um, but I sort of dove into a couple of your books, um, Speaking in Cod Tongues, A Canadian Culinary Journey, and The Lost Feast and I have a couple of questions around those. Um, so uh, starting with the speaking in cod tongues, um, you know, so that's uh, one where you uh, set out to explore and explain sort of uh, cuisine in, in Canada, which to me has always been an interesting topic because I don't, I don't know that I could ever explain what Canadian cuisine is. So, you know, in, in my house growing up, we ate curries, we ate stroganoff, we ate uh, pasta, all these things that uh, probably didn't originate in Canada. And so uh, when I have friends who aren't from Canada who ask me, what is Canadian cuisine? I can never ask that question. So how do you answer that question to you? What is Canadian cuisine? Yeah, and uh, it was such a fun project doing that. And I think it's it's really important to remember cuisines, they aren't, they aren't really what you eat at home entirely. Like if you if you go to you go to France and go into an average house in France. It's not like high French every day. It's you know it's the same kind of thing. You know they're eating the equivalent of pop tarts for dinner now and then. And uh, really, cuisine is you know this kind of thing you put toward the world that uh, you use almost as a bit of an identity marker and a calling card. And in Canada, we're a cuisine that's defined not so much by key dishes, although we do have a few, of course, but by properties. And those properties speak to what we think of as Canadian. So, you know, in the book, I talk about how we are a very wild cuisine, seasonal, tend to put ingredients forward rather than techniques. So, you know, you get your Kennebec potatoes and, uh, you know, your, you know, your mussels from Nova Scotia and, you know, they, they're actually advertised that way. And, uh, and, uh, also of course, very multicultural because we are multicultural as an identity point. And, uh, that's very, you know, it's very deliberate. 
um, in Canada's politics and our identity, and it's deliberate in our cuisine. So, yeah, we, uh, not to go too far down this rabbit hole, because I can literally talk about it all day, <laughs> but uh, we're a bit of what they call a Creole cuisine, where it's a whole bunch of people come together, live together, and they make something new. And so when I go out and eat sushi in Vancouver, it's usually Vancouver sushi, and it's very different than Japanese sushi or Hawaiian sushi um, mm. because it's creolized. It's uh, not just that uh, we've adapted it slightly. It's actually kind of evolved, um, you know, a bit like Darwinian evolution. And I always thought mm. that was kind of neat. And you see that all around the world. So that was a fun project. I've kind of, I don't do as much work on cuisine anymore, but uh you know, for, for a few years, I basically, my job was to wander around uh, the country eating things, talking to cool people, and that was pretty special. <laughs> yeah, that sounds just about uh, the perfect job, maybe. Um, it's an interesting way to frame it with the Darwinian perspective and how it evolved, because if I had to say, like, what is my favorite kind of food, I would probably say, you know, Tex-Mex or something like this, you know, so this food that's really evolved, you know, started off probably as Mexican cuisine, but then was you know, sort of influenced from the, uh, from the Southern United States and turned into now this Tex-Mex thing, which is like burritos and tacos and all that stuff. And I love that stuff, but uh, I don't know that it, that it, um, you could ever say that it originated in the Southern United States. There's all kinds of influences there, I think. Um, yeah, it's the same thing. And it's such a, you know, it's, I, I spent a lot of time in San Francisco. I lived there for a little while. And uh, yeah, the the California burrito is a work of art that you can't get in Canada. And uh, it is very much of a place. And it's because of the mixing that's occurred there, the various waves of people coming in and uh, with avocados all over it. And I just think it's wonderful. <laughs> Oh, it's the best thing. Man, we just should have had you on to, to uh, talk nothing but, but uh, burritos. I love burritos so much. We probably um, could do an hour on burritos, I think. Yeah. <laughs> we can get into salsas. We can get into cheeses. We can get into oh, yeah. all that stuff. Um, so on to, on to your next book, uh, Lost Feast. Um, you know, I didn't – I think maybe it's it's I would stand to reason to most folks on the street that we've eaten some species out of – or into extinction, out of existence. Um, but I was sort of shocked at at uh, just perusing the book. I haven't read it, but um, you know um, some of the examples. One of which was the passenger pigeon. I had no idea that that was a common thing that people ate, um, and so common in fact that they ate it into extinction. And so I would wonder to you, maybe somebody whose life evolves around food, if you could come across a passenger pigeon right now. How would you prepare it to eat? Would it be like duck or would it like... Well, how did I wouldn't they eat, eat it. it. <laughs> I wouldn't eat it. I'd, uh, <laughs> I'd call the Audubon Society, for God's sake. <laughs> I mean, you know, you know, maybe the news media. You know, I'd take yeah, care yeah, of that little right. guy. Um, okay, you're a better but, person than I am. <laughs> but uh, no, um, they, they, uh, they were really interesting bird. Um, of course, the most plentiful bird on earth ever and so you know the question that really hit me is how on earth did we kill them all and fairly quickly um and we did of course and it turned out that their evolutionary advantages became disadvantages when humans encountered them and they were 
pretty tasty, but the main thing is they were free protein because there were so many of them. Mm. And yeah, there was a time during, you know, where settlement of North America, people were eating passenger pigeon three times a day. And they just couldn't stand up to industrialized hunting practice, you know, where Mm. you had flocks of people heading out on the railways killing them in mass shipping them back to the cities but yeah the mm. um they were definitely a game bird and they were kind of dry so people prepared them uh by always sort of saucing them heavily wrapping them in bacon it's exactly like and you know it's uh i'm actually i'm vegetarian myself these days so i don't have to worry about this anymore but uh one of the long-time struggles in my family was looking at the turkey, which is such a lovely bird. It's just gorgeous. And we insist every year on, you know, killing turkeys and trying to turn them into dinner. And they're really hard to prepare from a culinary point of view. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we have a thousand ways we try and make it moist. You know, we uh, we wrap it in bacon. We My dad used to always, like, cooking it upside down. And none of these things really work that well except one, which is deep frying. And uh, <laughs> you don't want to you don't want to do that at home. No one should ever deep fry a turkey. It's one of the most dangerous things you can really do, but it does make it moist. So you know it's a, it's a real challenge. And I think it also speaks to how we're not really we're not familiar with game birds anymore because they've sort of moved out of our culinary category more into the wildlife category. We see them flying around in the sky, you know, and we're okay with that. If if we want to eat a bird, we, you know, go to Costco and get a chicken. And right. it's sort of been engineered to be, well, to be kind of bland, really. Bland and moist, and it just takes whatever flavor you put on it. Very different than, you know, catching a pigeon and roasting it. Sorry, that was a bit long for how would you cook a pigeon, but... I think it is really fascinating how these tastes evolve. And one of the things I study is, of course, the rise of plant-based proteins. And one of the things I'm curious about is if this continues down this trend in 100 years, will people look at animal meat, say, with the bone in and go, well, ooh, that's kind of gross. Why is there a bone in my dinner? I, you know, mm-hmm. that's, that's very odd. Why not? I don't want to eat that. I mean, you've sold me a piece I cannot eat that uh, looks kind of freaky. And so it's amazing how these things change. And what we eat changes over the centuries radically. Well, I was going to say, especially with like lab-grown meat now slowly progressing, Like, I'm curious, do you think that that's going to be something that people really take on? Because it seems like there's a huge potential for that oh, kind of yes. protein. Yeah, and it's... Um, so at the institute we study a few different things and one of the, our verticals is cellular agriculture and lab-grown meat and that's gone from a very small category where i had a couple of grad students who were really interested in it i was a bit interested myself and we kind of looked at it off the side of our desk it's now become a major part of our research agenda it's probably now next to vertical agriculture it's our biggest focus because it's about to happen in the real world. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it'll be very interesting to see how it plays out and how it fits in with plant-based products like 
say the Impossible Burger or Beyond Burger. Right. And so we're going to have this new category where it's meat, but it's not from an animal. And it's a fundamental shift. And it could be very good, but it also is probably going to be a little strange because, yeah, I could definitely talk about that for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> it's an interesting point you bring up about people not maybe uh, wanting a bone in their meat in the future. And I think about... <laughs> And when I watch my grandma eat, you know, um, things like chicken thighs with the bone in, she has no issue with it. But, like, I never ate that growing up. I always had uh, mostly chicken breasts. And so I'm used to that, like, clean, white-looking meat that has nothing in it, and, and I can eat the whole thing. And I'm trying now actually to, uh, uh, to go back to, to uh, uh, chicken thighs, and admittedly, uh, they're boneless. But um, I'm interested in now cooking with bones a bit more because of the flavor that you get out of it and all that stuff. But there's been a real, at, um, uh, for my family at least, uh, transition sort of away to that bone-in meat. And my wife as well. Um, it's just not something that I find as common. So it's a really interesting point you bring up about, like, what's the, how is that going to be looked at in the future? Oh, it's it's very true. And, it, you know, if we go back to the, you know, the Canadian cuisine book, I talk a lot there about the history of Canada and researching some of those early meals that politicians had as they discussed, you know, the, you know, the future of Canada. You read the menus and you're like, how are you guys even alive? Like, <laughs> it's all meat. There's no vegetables. <laughs> and they're they're each drinking two or three bottles of wine per meal, <laughs> and they're smoking cigars. And you're kind of like, like, God dang, how did you feel after this? Like, did Tired. you know you you know you just tried to build a country, but you're like in a food coma, and you're coughing, and you're drunk, and like like I do not understand actually physically how they consumed the meals that were that we see in the menus. And I really wonder down the road, are people going to look at us and think, wow, how did they eat that way? Didn't they just feel sick all the time? And hey, maybe we do mm. in comparison. Uh, uh, that's a really good point. I always uh, think about how, you know, like right now they're, they're writing books about anything, whether it's parenting or whatever it is. And they're like 30 years ago, <laughs> these idiots were doing this. And we love to think that today we're like, we finally got it right. But in 30 years, uh, there are going to be books where they say, look at what these idiots were doing in 2021. So it's a really good point to bring yeah. up. Oh, it is true. And one of my undergrads wrote a little essay a while back for me that was called, Is Steak the New Golf? And it was disparaging <laughs> of both things. And I read it and I thought, well, I'm old. And uh, <laughs> But I also thought, huh, you know, things things happen. It was actually quite clever. They uh, They compared the land given over to golf in urban areas, which, of course, is used by only a few people and mm. takes up an inordinate space to mm. cows, which also take up an inordinate amount of space. So it was quite a clever little essay, but it did make me feel a little bit like, oh, wow, I'm an antique. <laughs> is there, Lenore, is there a, a species now that, that we're tracking um, that we could be eating into extinction? Oh, like, yeah. The... Um, fish. I'm very scared. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. Scared yeah, about yeah, a lot of, course, of fish yeah. species. Here in BC, the one that I'm scared about is salmon. And it's very important to my family. I mean, I'm a fisherman's daughter. My family's fished for hundreds of years. And the thought of no salmon is just terrifying. But, uh, you know, they're getting a one two punch. We keep eating them, number one. But uh, number two, climate change. So it's, 
yeah, it's um, it's a frightening time for the ocean. So there's been a little bit of a turnaround. There's a little bit more understanding that we have to actually take care of oceanic species, but uh, there's still a lot of them that are at risk. Are you concerned about like um, farm fish? Um, it's an interesting one. Um, myself personally, I'm much more likely to be favorable to land-based fish farming because it's not in the ocean. Um, oceanic fish farming has some real challenges that imperil wild mm. stocks. And, you know, there's ways it can be done that are a lot better than others. But, uh, you know, right now about half of uh, salmon, for example, is uh, farmed rather than caught wild because the wild caught is just uh, in such sharp decline. Um, but mm. I think land-based fish farming could be one way to go with there. But, you know, to be honest, uh, I'm, I've am uh, i been following a company out of San Francisco uh, called Wildtype that is uh, creating salmon using cells. So no actual salmon, it's uh, cell egg. And uh, it's kind of like a, you know, a, it's like a printed version of salmon and it looks really good and i'm kind of like i could almost see that being the future if we really want the entire world to enjoy these products i could see that kind of technology really being where most people are getting their protein hmm. i could talk to you about agriculture cell agriculture for a long time i feel like um but what i was going to say is do you know if um, at this moment, the way they do it, if you can pretty much reproduce very similar tissue, like not just the protein component, but like all the other aspects that, that, you know, um, that kind of meat would offer. Oh yeah. And they're, they're getting really good at this. And so there's two technologies. We kind of lump cell ag as a big thing. There's really two technologies involved. One's advanced fermentation, which is used to produce liquids such as dairy. And that's happening now. I mean, if we could mm. wander across the Canadian border, which I can't, of course, because uh, not quite yet, um, one can walk into a store and buy ice cream that is dairy, but has never been near a cow. It uh, uses proteins produced by a company called Perfect Day. And it's a mixture of uh, fermented protein and plant fats. And people who have tried it tell me, yeah, they can't tell the difference. It's pretty well identical in mouthfeel uh -huh. and flavor profile. Um, on the meat side, it's trickier. I think we're still about five years away from it really being something we see a lot of. But we're starting to see these little bits and pieces of cell ag in terms of cultured meat drifting in i mean and it's identical i mean it's genetically identical to the uh to the natural product so uh mm. creates all sorts of interesting conundrums and policy yeah. issues and uh potential of course because we're looking at 80 to 90 percent savings on water on uh climate impact on sure. land use uh, basically i i always tell my students there's no silver bullet for uh for climate change like it's such a complex problem but mm -hmm. the real truth is um replacing animal products with products produced either from plants or using cell ag 
Actually, almost is a silver bullet for climate change. It's almost the only thing where you can say, yeah, if we did that, it would buy us 50 years, say, to figure mm -hmm. out the rest of it. It is that cosmic a change. And I've described Selag as probably the biggest change in food in 10,000 years. And Very interesting. Yeah, it's, I think... We're lucky to be alive at the time where truly disruptive food technology is rolling out. Very, very interesting. Um, uh, you had mentioned um, how you grew up on your family's boats. So I'm wondering if, if maybe you could just kind of walk us through how um, uh, food production and egg in, in general sort of found its way into your life and, and, and that lineage all the way up to uh, what you're doing now. Yeah, I was doomed. I was born into it. Um, my, my, my family are, are fishermen, um, although they aren't anymore. They've all kind of retired at this point. But uh, yeah, we fished uh, in Finland and uh, in BC uh, for hundreds of years. And uh, when my great-grandfather moved his family out here, they all started fishing in the Salish Sea, mostly salmon, although my dad uh, did halibut. And so I grew up in the industry. Um, my sister and I learned at a very young age how to sell uh, fish on a, on a dock, uh, usually by using the big-eyed, thin children sort of look, where the dad's, kind of, dad's uh, marketing technique was kind of, these children will starve if you don't buy fish. And it, it was really quite effective, actually. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, I grew up in the industry, and I always thought I would stay in the industry, but uh, then in the way life does sometimes you get these weird little things and uh i was awarded a full freight scholarship to do physics at university and i didn't want to go and uh i often tell the story of how my dad is responsible for my career because he was like it's free you have to go if you hate it you can come back dig in on the fishing but you gotta go try it it's free he was very there was you know, parent, very stressed. Hey, you've got a free thing. Go do it. Yeah, so that I sounds did. like a and wise I, guy. Oh, yeah. Smart yeah, man, and yeah. He, I, I was very stubborn. So, but anyway, and I often, often joke, he actually drove me to the first day of university at UBC. <laughs> Just to make, to sure, make sure. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, you know, I really took to that. And it was a, it was a good choice and uh, got a degree in physics and didn't really expect that my life would involve food at that point. Um, and I, you know, I wandered around, did some work out in the outside world and eventually ended up going back to do work in environmental science, uh, masters and doctoral. But the weird thing is food kind of crept in in a different way in that, uh, you know, I worked in the food industry to pay for the school part. And so, mm. you know, I worked in bars and a couple of restaurants along the way. And it was always there. And I was always fascinated by it. And I remember when I finished my doctorate work, I was and moved into sort of post-doctoral. I asked my mentors, I'm like, you know, I want to study food. You know, it seems like, why don't we study food? It's everywhere. We engage with it every day. And everyone's like, Lenar, you will never get a job. You can't study food. It's not a serious academic subject. It's a long time ago now. It's, um, you know, long enough ago now that this, you know, 
20 years ago, this was not an academic discipline. And they were like, you're never going to get a grant. And I'm like, well, once again, I'm stubborn. I was like, no, I'm going to do this. I'm going to study food and environment. And it turned out to be very prescient because uh, it did turn into a serious study uh, in academia, which it is. It should be. And so there are all sorts of people study food now. And, you know, it turned out I got grants. I did projects. You know, I trained doctoral students. And, of course, I eventually got a research chair, built an institute, because food is by far the single most important part of the economy. Maybe not entirely by dollar weight, but, uh, hey, pick one to turn off and uh, tell me how you do. And uh, you <laughs> usually find out you can go without, say, copper a lot longer than you can go without food. <laughs> and uh, all these things, you know, like, uh, you know. So it turned out to be a good career move and one that's uh, really been fascinating, sometimes terrifying. But, uh, you know, now we have a pretty good little team uh, looking at that question, what does food look like in the future 100 years from now? Hmm. And, uh, yeah, I love what I do. Yeah, sounds like it. Um, so just uh, turning an eye to what food's going to um, look like in the future, potentially. Um, I'm wondering if, if we can start with maybe what food production looks like now. And, and you know, um, what I'll call traditional agriculture, which, you know, that might not be the right way to talk about it, but just basically what we're doing now to produce food. And uh, it's a broad topic, and this is a big question, I suppose. But I wonder if, if maybe you could highlight... Um, you know, what some of the problems or issues with maybe how we're currently producing food are. Yeah, it's, food's a problem. And I can sum it up pretty easily. We use over 40% of the Earth's land surface to produce food. Hmm. And that single stat explains everything that's wrong with the food system right now. And what that means is there's very little space left for everything else. And, um, I don't know. I've sometimes heard it described as we don't really live on a planet. We live on a we live on a an animal farm that just happens to have a little bit of wild stuck to it here and there. And mm. to me, this is terrifying and also a dead end because you know population still rising. Also, large parts of the world haven't consumed as much food as they want to, and so. We have to ask the question, okay, we're already using 40%. But the little key trick to that is most of it is going into the animal system. <laughs> of that 40%, about 28% is uh, actually grazing. And, I mean, some of that's very legitimate. I mean, it's land you couldn't really do much else with, so you're kind of getting a bonus out of it. But a lot of it is not. And a lot of our field crops go straight into animals. Uh, we actually don't eat that many of our field crops. We feed them to other animals, some of which are very inefficient. And of course, I pick on cows a lot, which is a shame because I actually really like cows. But, you know, about 3% of what we feed to a cow actually comes back to us as food because they're a megafauna. They are by far the biggest animal in the food system. Mm. And they were never meant to be so many cows. And mm. there are really a lot of cows on Earth now. And so we have to address this in some way. And, you know, my my uh, partner is vegan and also 
has really gotten me to, you know, as someone who has killed a lot of animals, personally, because I grew up on a fish boat, sure. killed a lot of animals, way more than the average person. And, you know, in an era where we don't have to do that, where there's massive environmental benefit and ethical benefit and health benefit to not doing that, you know, she really pushed me to ask those questions professionally and to say, well, what does the world look like where we don't do so much of that, where we scale that back? And so a lot of my work has focused on that. Now, the other problem I look at that's not about things that walk around on four legs is the idea that right now we have a really pretty interesting system where we grow things and ship them all over the world. And for some commodities, this is wonderful. It works perfectly. Canadian grain, for example, you grow the grain on the prairie, it's dry, you, you know, it's easy to move around, you put it on a boat, you send it where you want to go. Lettuce is another beast. Right now in BC here, every year, we import about $1.2 billion of leafy greens from California. Hmm. And that's 90% California water that they don't have, that they're yeah. shipping to us. And so my the thing I'm tilting at hardest these days is that that leafy green change. It just bugs me because in February in Vancouver, I cannot buy good lettuce. I pay way too much for it. The labor the labor that went into it is, is horrid. The conditions are horrid. Mm. The environmental conditions are horrid. And I get a bad product. And there's a way around this. We can just grow it here indoors year round locally and it's way better and we're about to do that on a massive scale and i i mean i talk about these two technologies indoor agriculture and cellular agriculture if we move cellular agriculture off saying yeah it's not quite ready yet <coughs> vertical agriculture is here and it is about to roll out in a big way redefine how we do you know a lot of our leafy greens and other vegetables and small fruits and it's going to be great. Massive climate change savings, relocalization of high quality food, better nutrition. We are about to have a lettuce renaissance, I believe. And didn't see that one coming, did you? <laughs> didn't see like, wow, this is the golden age of lettuce. I can't, what a time to be alive. We are about to see that, I truly believe. And like almost any moment now. Well, Lenore, this is why we, we want to, as Kyle alluded to earlier, this is why we want to bring you into the conversation is because of, uh, of you know, your passionate sort of case about vertical agriculture and then, you know, us learning just now more about cellular agriculture. What do you think about regenerative farming? Is that is that an option? Is that Can that provide somewhat of a solution? I don't know if you've heard about, um, there was a study done on a farm in, in Georgia. I forget what, I forget what the exact farm is, but they found that, um, through regenerative farming of, of cattle, they're able to, um, turn their farm into kind of a carbon sink. It, it was actually a net carbon, um, at the end of it. And so, you know, in terms of, because I also think about preserving the livelihoods of, of families and generations of communities who are centered on agriculture. And, you know, it's, it's shifted away from, you know, it may have started as kind of regenerative to begin with, and now it's become a lot more commercialized and traditional and that sort of thing, uh, traditional, I guess, in the new sense of it. But, um, but do you think regenerative could be an option? Yeah. And, you know, I often 
speak quite fondly of regenerative um, with one caveat. And so to me, the, the big thing about regenerative that would be lovely is it allows you, well, it depends. It's a, it's a slippery word. And so right now, a lot of very large producers and corporations are grabbing that label. And it may not actually mean that much of a difference on the ground, but at its best, mm. and I've actually, you know, I've looked at it in the Australian context, which is sort of where regenerative comes from originally. You can restore ecosystems by just saying, okay, I need to radically lower the number of animals I have on this patch. I need to take care of the soil. I need to not overgraze. And oh, look, the ecosystem comes back. Isn't that lovely? Mm -hmm. That is wonderful. The flaw, the flaw with regenerative that we need to address, and it's why I, I work so heavily on the intensive indoor production, is you don't get as much out because physics is a thing. And, you know, you can overgraze like crazy and mine the soil and produce a ton of food and 20 years later have a giant problem. Or you can do it regeneratively forever, but you don't get as much. And mm. the problem is we don't have the science really yet to say exactly how bad a problem that is. But it's not really a problem if you think, okay, I'm going to produce a bunch of food intensively indoors. I've already got the, you know, the sort of grains and pulses working well through what we call precision agriculture. So they're good. We can just keep doing them. And let's pair regenerative with indoor intensive. Now, hmm. that sounds lovely. However, in food circles, mainly it means everyone hates me all the time because there is an ideology <laughs> at work right now in the food system that's very uncomfortable. And I will admit, as someone who grew up in the food system, I find very annoying. And I will rant slightly about this is there is a romantic vision of food production in North America, and it's mostly a North American thing, where there's definitely an academic sort of focus on really small scale, sort of farming like they think happened in the past. And the problem is, number one, it's romantic, didn't actually produce much food, and we have scientific studies now showing that. Um, it can be very misogynist, you know, very homophobic, very focused on, you know, on sort of one Caucasian model of farming that never really existed. So the romanticism, if we throw out the romanticism, which does tend to get attached to regenerative, and we say, okay, regenerative is great, but it's not going to give us as much food. Technology is great if we actually do it locally and think about it and don't just say, yay, technology, let's roll it out everywhere. Let's actually critique it. If you apply science to this, you get a model that really works. And I'm, I stand by that. And there's a few of us, a few, the brave and the proud, who tout this model everywhere and yell about it a lot. And yeah, we get a lot of critique from everywhere, from all sides, because large-scale agriculture, industrial agriculture, they, you know, they're, they're going to be slow to change. And there's still this sort of romantic vision of agriculture and the people who believe very much in it sometimes 
are less likely to look at technology and not just see bad. So in North America, bridging that gap is really important, I think. And to me, one of the reasons like I like indoor agriculture so much, especially horticulture, is so far, most people, even if they are more attached to romantic notions or large-scale outdoor field production, when they walk in to a building and it's full of beautiful, perfect produce that is all just flourishing, it's green, the nutrient content is high, there's no bugs, so there's no pesticides, and they see it all, and it's fresh, because, hey, it's growing where you actually need it. Most people look at it, and they're like, okay, I get why you yell about this all the time, it's great, this tastes amazing. <laughs> and I, I, do think, I do think in the long run, perfect produce will win. So the new so when you talk about nutrient content, um, do they measure also like the micronutrients, the minerals, all that? Is that very similar, or is it? Or are we just talking about that on the macro oh, side? Oh yeah, and you know the nice thing what people don't realize about hydroponics is you can literally control exactly what's in the plant, and this is actually a big advantage because um, you can even do things like. Uh, some of our vegetables are not entirely good for you because of uh, mostly sodium content. So take celery. I mean, I'm, I occasionally like celery, but I know it's not actually that good for me because it's really high sodium. Hmm. I can grow low sodium celery. I just have to take the sodium away. And hmm. you literally can tweak what you get to be much better for you. And also... It's controlled. You can test. And I mean, the no herbicide, no pesticide is massive. And, you know, I've always been a big fan of trying to get away from that in field production, such as with organic, um, you know, biodynamic. But the truth is they can't produce at enough scale. And even organic, some of the chemicals they use in organic, we forget they actually do use chemicals, things like Mm. coppers and such. I don't really love them either. I'd rather be inside where I know exactly what I'm getting. And mm. uh, also, much less food waste. Um, we, we, when we bring lettuce in from California, I mean, it takes seven days to get it onto the shelf. We probably throw away about half of it. And you really notice that in wow. Canada. Whoa. When you buy romaine in Canada, you'll always notice it's kind of stripped down, like you're only kind of getting yeah. the center. Yeah. Well, that's because the people at the processing center in Canada got it from California. Like They're like, ooh, most of this is already bad. Let's strip, 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 strip. They've thrown away half of their product. By the way, they hate doing that. They're not bad people. They hate it mm. because they paid to bring that from California and they're composting it. Sure. Believe Whoa. me, these processing and distribution people really are interested in growing it here where they can get a lettuce and actually sell the whole thing. No doubt. I had no idea that it was that high. Um, maybe just for um, somebody like myself who doesn't really know much about this space, uh, can you break down you know, what an indoor or vertical farm looks like? Like, you know, um, if you're going to explain it to, say, a five-year-old. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. I just kind of break down sort of what that what an operation like that would look like. Yeah, it's uh, I think they're quite wondrous machines and that's what they are. It's like a machine that manufactures 
a food product. So let's take lettuce because it's a nice easy one. Um, so what you have is a big room lit with LED lighting that is tuned to be perfect for lettuce. And so these rooms often look really groovy because lettuces really like red light with a little bit of blue. So it comes out kind of purple. Mm. So the lettuces are in there all happy because they're getting the right light. Out in the wild, the lettuce in, in a field is often getting burnt because there's too much light. You can give it the exact right amount of light. So imagine that. Now, how do you grow them? You stack them in stacks on racks usually. And so there'll be layer after layer of lettuce with its little lights over it. And underneath, it will be sitting in a bath of uh, mainly water with nutrients in it in a hydroponic system, usually growing in some sort of uh, sort of inert product like a coconut fiber that just holds it up. That's literally all that does. We call that the substrate. So the lettuce is sitting there. There's no dirt on it. There's no bugs. It's just drinking what it needs out of this little river of stuff that flows by. And you can put whatever you need in that river. But then you can also get really tricky. So you might look at that product and say, I wonder if this lettuce would like a little more CO2. Because the weird thing, it would. And because it's a contained building, you can crank the CO2 up to about a thousand parts per million. So a bit over twice atmospheric. And the lettuce will be like, holy crap, this is wonderful. I love this place. And it grows about 20 to 30% better. Yeah, We're, We treat lettuce really well. And, and the weird thing, think about it for a minute. You're putting CO2 in. So you got to get it from somewhere. You're actually sequestering CO2. So a properly tuned vertical farm like this is actually sinking CO2 from other uses. And mm. if you stop doing that, like if you literally turn that off, the amazing thing is the lettuce will drain all the CO2 out of the atmosphere and stop growing. It'll just shut down. And you'll be like, what happened to my lettuce? And it's like, hey, we need CO2. And uh, it's quite amazing, uh, that part of it. So think of it as a box. Okay. You put in water, a bit of nutrients, and uh, a little bit of lettuce seed, and some CO2, and some energy that you turn into light, and lettuce falls out the other end. Um, one of the other reasons I, I love this, it's very uniform. You get a very nice uniform crop, which is good for our current distribution system. And uh, the other nice thing, it uses almost no water. The only water you use, if you're really doing it well, the only water you lose is in the crop. Because what happens, all of those plants and that all that lighting throw off a ton of heat. So you actually have to take that heat out uh, using an HVAC system. Mm. And the weird thing, it condenses all the water in the air out and gives it back to you. So you use oh. maybe 5% the water you do in field production. It's, it's one of the reasons that producing lettuce in really desert climates down in the south of the U.S. bugs me so much. You're literally just pouring water on this crop and it's like, ah, the water's going away so quickly i gotta grab any of it i can most of the water's ending up in the atmosphere and is lost out of aquifers not in this you know you're barely using water at all wow so that, that's 
Yeah, that is really quite the sales pitch, I got to admit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, I, I love this industry. It's just so beautiful. <laughs> okay, so so lettuce sounds like, um, I don't want to say easy, because I'm sure there's a lot of things yeah. to overcome. And there's like you said, you need to have the right amount of light. There's probably all these kind of technical things that you need. But it sounds like sort of a crop that you probably could start with. Does, yeah. Can you scale this to other sort of crops, do you think, pretty easily? Like cucumbers and tomatoes and yeah. all kinds of it's, other vegetables? And If we sort of look at a spectrum, cucumbers, tomatoes, and peppers are already produced in greenhouse very yeah. effectively. And yeah. so they're great. They're easy. And you, most people use glass greenhouses. You could grow them in with artificial light if you really wanted to. No problem. Lettuce? And leafy greens, perfect for vertical agriculture. Uh, next up is strawberries, which is very, they're very close to being uh, commercially viable. And that one's important because we get 80% of our strawberries from California and almost all the rest are from Mexico. Uh, the production is very dirty. Uh, the fields are coated in plastic that's thrown away every year. Um, the labor practices are terrible. And of course, as you know, strawberries in winter, they're not great. No. We can produce a perfect strawberry using these technologies. Um, then we can look to raspberries, blackberries, small fruit. I'm really bullish on the, on the brassica, growing broccoli and uh, collards, mm -hmm. that kind of thing indoors. And then you kind of get to this place where you get a little more adventurous. Um, some of the ones I'm really excited about, people are looking at things like cherries because they're very difficult crop outside, but you need to have really short trees. Uh, same with avocados. Avocados are like a holy grail of indoor ag because they're so expensive and they're so delicate. Right. Um, then you enter the range of the ones that will never do indoors properly unless we're in space, uh, which I also right about <laughs> so <laughs> things like potatoes they're fine outside all the grain crops they're fine outside we've added technology outside to make them work well um tree fruits i'd love to do them inside but i don't think it's going to be economically viable for a very long time so things like apples and oranges and lemons um you know you can grow almost anything inside the barrier is what makes sense so and it is funny because my next book, uh, which I'm writing with Dr. Evan Fraser from Guelph, we did it as a little pandemic project, is actually called Dinner on Mars. And it asks the question, how do we do all this on a planet that isn't Earth? And what you end up with is, wow, you're really inside. So if you want a lemon, you got to figure out how to do it indoors. And it's really tricky. So that'll be out uh, next year, I think. Uh, we're slowly cool. working through the process. But what you learn... There's crops that are easy. There's crops then that are just too expensive, but you could do them if you really wanted to. <clears throat> so, so no, um, with the fruits, that's really interesting. Would they just be self-pollinated then? Like, um, how would that work? No, you uh, you actually need bees. Um, and this is a big thing in greenhouses. Uh, and one of my one of my little pet projects. Uh, is looking at how do we make that more sustainable because right now pollinators in greenhouses it's really tricky to kind of keep them alive but i mean it's tricky to keep them alive in monocultures as well mm -hmm. i think ultimately because we do need bees in these systems 
we can really work to say, okay, how do I make sure the bees are happy? One of the nice things about the vertical is there's actually a constant rotation of cropping and so flowering. So a vertical strawberry operation, your beehive probably is going to be okay. It's probably going to be pretty happy in there. But yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. All this technology, we can't get away from the bees. Um, we have to bring them with us. That goes for Mars, too. We have to take them with us. And we're not even sure they can fly up there. Space bees? The... Space bees. Space space bees. bees. <laughs> That's the start of a horror movie. <laughs> yeah, and it's... Um, I love bees. I think they're really cool. I I totally have bees if my partner would let me keep bees in an apartment with no balcony. But... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, not going to work. Um, my family own a small farm, and I've always wanted to have bees on that, but uh, they have bears as well, and bears and bees, they don't mix. Yeah, well, okay. they mix for a very short period of time, and then the bear's happy and the bees are unhappy. <laughs> but uh, I love bees. I think they're great. Uh, some of my most favorite research moments have involved hanging out with bees. And, yeah, so they're a big part of this future, and I want to make sure they're really treated well and mm. uh, they're happy as they buzz around inside. Mm. Yeah. I mean, so uh, that was one question I was going to have is what happens to sort of the wild pollinators. And um, so maybe it sounds like if there would still be some kind of crop production outside, like you mentioned with grains or, or tree fruits or something along those lines, plus wildflowers, maybe the impact yeah. wouldn't be so negative on pollinators or would there be a significant negative impact well, if a certain amount? Well, one would actually hope. One would hope there'd be a massive positive impact because the key goal of this, you remember I led with that 40% mm -hmm. number. The problem for mm -hmm. most pollinators is that a lot of industrial agriculture, it's like a factory floor. So especially like the almond fields in California, they move nearly all the bees in North America, the, you know, the domestic hives to California to pollinate that crop, but then they can't keep them there because they die. There's nothing to eat. What we can do is the more we can move indoors, because it's so effective, and there's one group I'm working with right now, they're producing about 100 acres of crops on each acre of indoor farm. So the idea is you can take mass swaths of current industrial farmland, return it to wilderness, and then your domestic or your, your wild pollinators, they actually have a place to live. And I really think if we have a future on this planet that isn't, you know, just as a future museum exhibit in some other species museum, if we have a future on this planet, we have to return, I would say, at least half of that 40% to raw nature and just leave it alone. Mm. Because we, we can't keep tearing down nature. And I mean, even in the course of this interview, you know, probably a couple acres of Amazon rainforest has been logged to grow beef for North America. It's it's like a crime. It's a terrible crime we're all complicit in. And we need to move away from that radically fast. It's one of the reasons, I mean, aside from, you know, you know, my personal upbringing, etc. One of the reasons I went veg, I didn't want to be so complicit anymore in the wholesale destruction of Earth's ecosystems, which just is going on right now today and we could move away from that if we move enough things inside so even if you um so on that last point and i appreciate that that perspective what would you say though to those who 
think that they're, I don't know, maybe not, I don't know, positively contributing, but perhaps minimizing that contribution or destruction to land use and wildlife if they shopped at their local farmer and that farmer, again, had regenerative practices, was as clean as possible. Is, does that sort of satisfy anything or? It can be good. I mean, yeah. You know, anytime we're buying stuff that wasn't grown in the tropics, uh, unless, you know, it's a crop that's supposed to be in the tropics, um, it, it's better. It's, I'll tell you this, I, I hate to say this, I know I'm going to get, I'm going to get uh, some nasty comments on this. To be honest, if there's a small scale inefficient farm using 100 acres of BC rainforest, and a one-acre indoor farm using, you know, full vertical agriculture autonomous. It's bringing robots doing the lettuce. It's way better to buy your produce from the person running that autonomous farm. It just is. Mm. And mm. in a perfect world, you take that 100-acre small lot farm, you return it to wilderness. And that is the best outcome. That said still better to be buying your you know lettuce in season from that local farmer if you don't have the option if it's that or california shop at the local guy but if um you know if the robot farm opens up next door that's <laughs> the environmental winner and it's uh, you know yeah i'm not really winning friends with that but i mean except among tech people they like it and you know i think the amazing thing the amazing thing and i will rant for a minute one of the things i love is when I go to conferences now for vertical agriculture, I love who I see. I see people, you know, very diverse backgrounds, diverse gender diversity. I see people, I see a lot of young people. I see a lot of young people that have never farmed before. It's new to them, they're tech people. I see this wide range. I see, but I also see people who are older, who have a farm, they wanna pivot into something new. I mean, I see people who might have a thousand acres of soybeans who want to have a couple acres of lettuce in an indoor ag facility just because they think it's neat. And it's so diverse, so positive, moving so rapidly. It makes me very happy. And one of my longtime complaints with that sort of small scale, you know, farmer down the road model. And I mean, I love farmer's markets. I've been on the board of a very large farmer's market here in Vancouver. You know, I've written about farmers markets, but we always struggled with the diversity piece. And I really like how the new emerging farming, and it's it's doesn't even really have a good name yet. Uh, it's been called things like, uh, you know, local chain ag tech is one that's emerged recently. I, I like that, um, you know, like ag tech in general. Uh, I just see the diversity there and the excitement there. And yeah, I think, you know, it's a bit of a trade-off. Although, to be fair, I don't, I think the false dichotomy that we buy into is small romantic farm, high-tech ag farm, and somehow that's the, the choice. It's not. It's not. 95% here lettuce is coming from California from a couple of valleys that are basically being strip mined for lettuce production. That is the choice. So, you know, I guess the long answer to your question, picking either of those other options is really good. 
But, you know, I think give the tech a chance. And the tech isn't coming for small ag. The tech's coming for big ag. And I really feel big ag tries to foster that fighting between small-scale agriculture and and tech agriculture. They're trying to make us enemies because they're afraid of us. When you uh, when you write that book uh, on, on Mars, I, I feel like you should tag Elon Musk in a, in a mm. tweet or something because his goal, my understanding, is to get to Mars, and I'm sure he'd be super interested in what you're writing. Well, yeah, we're really hoping he might read it because we're a little worried that he isn't thinking hard enough about the food, and the food is a big piece, and it's really hard. I mean, Evan Fraser and I really learned over the year, wow, it's going to be hard to feed ourselves on Mars. It We take Earth for granted. Earth's a really cool planet. Food just literally explodes out of the ground. You know, it's uh, there's free air, there's free water. Mars is going to be really, really difficult. Mm. That's a little teaser from the book. This is going to be hard. If we're not careful, the first colony is, you know, the first sort of towns on Mars are just going to starve to death. And, and that, that pitched really it to, uh, to Musk. Lead with the space bees. You got to lead with the space bees. I think that was. Oh, I think he would be in on space bees. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Who's not in on totally. space bees? Although I can see a world yeah. where like transitions to like a horror movie thing or something. Anyways, but I would just leave the space bees and let Elon kind of run with it from there. Um, so you talk a lot about trends, and I, I think I have a question here um, that I think I know the answer to. That's do you see a world where indoor farming is the primary source of food for the world's population. And so, I, I mean, I, I think that the answer to that maybe is yes, and um, I'll, I'll let you answer that in a sec. But I'm wondering if that's the case and if it needs to ramp up, are there major barriers to its adoption right now? Um, and and um, are there jurisdictions around the world that are maybe leading that adoption? And where does Canada sit on there? So there's a bunch of questions there. Yeah, for sure. And... So I think that indoor ag is going to dominate in the categories where it makes sense. And my main caveat is, you know, grains and pulses, we kind of have them figured out outside. Mm. Prairie production, it meets everyone's needs. Actually, we grow a little more than we need. And uh, it's done using precision ag with satellites and drones and autonomous tractors. It's great. And you'll notice during the pandemic, well, the vegetable sector and the, you know, the meat sector in particular were having crisis after crisis. Grains and pulses just chugged along. You didn't, you didn't read a story about, oh, there's a wheat shortage. No, there weren't. There were no wheat shortages because uh, those sectors work well. So we'll leave them alone. But I think in the more delicate, the small fruits, the leafy greens, the, you know, the vegetables, we're going to see a lot of indoor ag. How do we get there? Well, number one, it's, best if it's paired with um, green energy because it is energy intensive that is the input you need is electricity here in british columbia that's wonderful because i mean our electricity is literally water running down the rockies toward the ocean and so we have really green electricity you know using coal burning electricity to grow lettuce not as great we need to look at how do we make sure the energy is there technologically most of it's in place and it's getting better all the time the led lights are getting better and better and that lowers your energy need labor is a big problem training is a big problem we're short of people um so we really need to ask ourselves you know how do we make sure we have the workforce that we actually need 
And uh, if I look around the world, there's a few leaders. The Netherlands are the all-time leaders in this area. And then they're joined by some upstarts, uh, Silicon Valley in, the, in California, mm. um, Singapore, the surprise dark horse of indoor ag because they have no farmland. But to sure, them, yeah. that was a real weakness. So they said, we want to produce 30% of our food on, on our territory by 2030. Almost impossible. But you really need vertical ag to do it if you're going to have any chance of making that number. Where does Canada sit? We're an interested bystander, hopefully about to jump in really hard. Right. We do have a good greenhouse industry, but not as much as we should. There's been a lot of interest. Um, you know, I was tagged with a few others to sit on a premier's task force here in BC to discuss how could we really bring this industry to British Columbia. And what you really learn, it needs needs government, number one, to get out of the way because there are some zoning and policy issues that are really geared for farming 100 years ago and they kind of get in your way when you're suddenly in a building. And it's almost philosophical. You have to realize farmers are different. So what is a farmer? Well, that person standing in a factory cranking out lettuce, that's a farmer. And so there's a little bit of work to do there. We also do need support for training for R&D. Uh, incubation is a big one. We have a problem in Canada where we have a lot of startups, and those startups tend to move south as they get to a certain size down into the States. We need to keep them here. Mm. Uh, I really feel Canada should be a world powerhouse in this. I mean, number one, it's winter like all the time, except for <laughs> 10 minutes every year, it seems like. Um, so, you know, it's not like outdoors is treating us that well. Mm. And I mean, right now it's, it's been raining for, oh, I don't know, a month here. I don't know. It just rains every day. Uh, I mean, it makes sense for us. Also, we're good at tech and we can export that tech around the world. And I really think to me, the sort of key to this is you eat the food locally, you export the tech, the talent, the data. Mm that you gather while producing that, that's a real powerhouse. What the Dutch have been doing for years. And we need to take lead. I'd love to see Canada kind of be in the top 10 in this. And I think we could be if we if we jump hard. Very interesting. So it sounds like you think there's a, I mean, pretty high economic potential for, for indoor vertical farming. If those barriers are removed and the adoption, you know, sort of uh, rolls out um, how you predict. I mean, that's a almost the establishment of an entire new industry from an old industry almost, or, you know, from a very prominent industry right now. But, um, and the food production is great, but the resource almost is the tech itself from an economic perspective and sort of the export of that tech expertise and technology. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm. And I think it's going to be really exciting to see that kind of un unroll. Yeah. Is there uh, is there big money preventing or big industry kind of preventing adoption. So like you think about the meat sector, we know that at least much of it is controlled by a handful of companies. I mean, that's not, that's the case in many product and food products. I don't know what it's like in like leafy greens and, 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 and vegetables and such, but is that, is that a big issue that big, big industry or big money is kind of preventing adoption in some way? Not really in the case of indoor indoor growing. Um, really, okay. it's been technology needing to get to a point at which proof of concept scales. And what we're actually seeing now is big money trying to get in. Mm. Uh, 
I've had a lot of venture capitalists and, you know, big funds lately calling me up saying, hey, what about this sector? Is this a good sector? How close is it? What's, you know, what's return on investment? What's CapEx? And really, we're at a stage where I think it's just going to kind of go. And what's been holding it back has been that production, the cost per unit. And the cost right. per unit is now competitive with field grown <laughs> in some sectors. And yeah, there's um, there's a lot of money sitting on the sidelines right now looking for investments. And this one is seen as potentially very good. So I think in a way, big money will be helping on the... Also, it's, you know, lettuce, leafy greens, they don't have the lobbying power of dairy and beef. Mm -hmm. And so it's not quite as much an issue. And yeah, of course, when you move into those heavily subsidized, heavily protected industries, that will be very different. But believe me, broccoli isn't one of them. And I've always felt, boy, broccoli farmers need a break. They they need a they need a lobbyist. They need a senator fighting for big them. broccoli. Getting them. We need big broccoli <laughs> because we don't eat enough of it. It's good for us. Mm. And you know we're fighting against things like big sugar. And we're like, where's big broccoli? It's not there. <laughs> so I think it is. It does sort of thread. And I often feel like um, you know, and I work a lot with industry associations. Fruit farmers have it tough. Mm. It's just nature hates fruit farmers. I swear. <laughs> It's just like every year something horrible is happening to them and they don't get the kind of government attention some of the other industry sectors do. And uh, so I think, you know, small fruit, things like that, it's sort of wide open road right now. And fruit is so, so hard. So oh, uh, oh, sorry, Pesh. Um, fruit okay. is so hard. To, like we have in my backyard, we probably have, I don't know, eight raspberry bushes and maybe 10 strawberry plants. I bet you we got like seven <laughs> raspberries and like two strawberries this year. We have this stupid squirrel. Sorry, I actually love squirrels, but this squirrel keeps eating our strawberries. Um, and I'm trying to grow like 100 of the things. I would be just so excited if I got 100 strawberries, but got like two. So I just feel sort of like you're right on that point that, you know, fruit, it's just hard. It's just hard in general to produce. Yeah, and imagine I could deliver you a two-acre facility that produced the best strawberry you ever ate and produced a ton of them a day. I'll take because we can do that. I'll take a hundred of those strawberries every year. Yeah, there you go. See, you're that's set. my investment. You're I will buy a hundred strawberries yeah. from that thing every year. <laughs> uh, I, I was going to say, so I feel like sell out agriculture probably would have a maybe a harder time with with big money. Hey, we're learning a lot from watching. Uh, watching uh, plant-based um, interact mm -hmm. with uh, the meat industry. Although it is kind of weird because a lot of the big meat companies are investing heavily in Bested, yeah. Yeah. And I don't know, I asked, I asked a nameless, who shall remain nameless, a C-suite uh, person from one of the big meat producers. I said, why, why are you investing in cell? Like, isn't that kind of like boxing? Like, what, what's going on there? And he said, well, look, we're not a cow company. We're a meat company. Mm. And I thought, ah, oh, I get that. So Do they say that now, though? Well, they do. And, <laughs> you know, ultimately, I think there'll, there'll be some tussle, for sure. Mm. Especially around cows, around maybe less around chickens. Um, there'll be tussle. But I think Selag has so many big backers. 
that it will hit a tipping point. But yeah, I expect I expect some fights. I expect mm-hmm. some regulatory and policy fights around Selag once right now the right now the conventional industries aren't entirely aware of what's happening. Mm. And it's still on the radar. They don't know how close it is to being on their doorstep. I think there's certain places that are easier to drop. Um, fish, for example, there is no such thing as big fish. It's, you know, <laughs> believe me, as someone who grew up in the industry, we wish there'd been big fish. There was not big fish. Mm. And so, you know, when I look at that, fish is easier to disrupt. I think beef and chicken are going to be a little harder. And when I look at dairy, dairy is going to be an interesting one because there's going to be a terrible fight. But sell dairy is going to be so much cheaper and so much better because dairy is a really tough industry. It only exists because it's heavily subsidized, heavily protected, because it's hard. And, you know, you're 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 basically raising an ice age animal and keeping it pregnant to produce your product. And, you know, you're left with all these little cows you can't really do anything with, uh, and especially the male ones, because no one eats veal anymore. And, you know, the cows only live three years or so. It's, you know, it's, it's a really hard industry. I always feel very sorry for dairy. I mean, in Canada, it's a little different. They're so protected by supply management, but globally, really tough industry could be pretty easy to disrupt even plant-based milks which are not the same although oat milk's a great product the disruption they're causing is actually challenging the dairy industry already if you throw in genetically identical milk from advanced fermentation such as companies like perfect day are promising it's gonna it's gonna be really interesting i'm actually looking forward to watching it as an academic because it's fascinating it's going to be like the most interesting 10-year period in the history of dairy by far. I love all these hot takes. Like, I'm pumped. So many like, <laughs> yeah. headline-worthy quotes yeah. from Lenore. It's so yeah. good. Um, I'm trying to think, Kyle, because like, we usually in our in our podcast, Lenore, we break up clips and we kind of put them on YouTube. I'm like, which oh, clips am I going to put on these so ones? Many, so many. So many good ones. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we're, we're just yeah. uh, over an hour here. And then um, we like to kind of end the, end the conversation with a couple of Hopefully, lighter-hearted questions, um, not like the hard-hitting journalism that uh, um, uh, we've been grilling you with for the last hour. But uh, so, uh, one that I want to ask you, as as somebody who is whose life revolves around food, food production, all that stuff, um, what do you have for dinner? Like, um, so from on like Sunday, are you like meal planning and you're making like these extravagant meals every day, or like what's your weekly meal plan look like, and what are you having for supper tonight? Well, it's a constant battle because I am, uh, you know, it's always a little, I'm a little torn because I am, I'm very into food, obviously, mm. and I do cook a lot. Okay. I'm not much of a baker, but I am, I am a cook. And so it alternates between ridiculously complicated to the point it annoys my partner because she's, <laughs> she's trying to work around me and I'm like, wait, that's fermenting, that's on fire, don't put the fire out yet. It's good fire. You know, that's... <laughs> Yeah, that's that's a three hundred year old recipe. Don't probably don't eat that one. And you know, there's always this thing, and there's like a thousand ingredients, and all my knives are dirty at once, and there's dishes every yeah. So there's that. But of course, I'm also extremely busy, and so I also eat a lot of really quick meals mm. that <clears throat> are usually protein and greens in a bowl with some rice. 
and you know bit of few bit of condiment a little bit of fermented fermented black bean sauce which is my go-to i have a few go-to flavors that i use to deal with the fact i work like 20 hours a day <laughs> is so fermented black beans from cetron okay. are like my absolute go-to i've got chili oil in the fridge too always because i oh yeah i like everything too spicy um also, uh, miso. I think miso oh, is yeah. like, you put miso in anything, it's good. Mm. Got that umami, it's got a lot of glutamates. Mm. I mean, we do, we cook vegan at home, uh, which really was a stretch at first. At first, I'm like, I don't know what to do. I mean, everything I eat is like 100 pounds of butter. What, what am I going to do? And so that's been a real stretch, <laughs> learning to do that well. And to really embrace vegetables. And I grew up in a household where vegetables were not really a thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was it was the 70s and we were fishing family. We didn't have vegetables. <laughs> you know, my dad, my dad at the time, he felt he felt broccoli, broccoli, you could, should only eat the ghost. So you cook it until it's just a ghost of the plant, you know, where you can just pass your hands through it. My grandmother perfected that recipe of broccoli that you, you couldn't touch it because it would just disappear in the air. And, uh, and canned peas, lots of canned peas okay. when I was growing up. So, so yeah, so there's a lot of that. Um, you know, I will admit I occasionally, I try and split the difference where there's things I cannot cook at home because too complicated, like, say, Ethiopian food. So, yeah, Uber. Hello, Uber. I'd like more Ethiopian food. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I do that. I was actually, but tonight it will probably be kind of a mix because it is Saturday. Um, it will be a little bit of complicated bowls because I really do like the bowls. So there'll probably mm. be some brown rice and some vegetables not incinerated. Maybe <laughs> I like doing broccolini <laughs> in the oven with the miso glaze. Oh, yeah. Um, probably tempeh is one of my favorite go-to proteins. Mm. Um, I get a little tired of tofu. I eat a lot of it. And so I go for things like tempeh and... Uh, Do you make your own tempeh? I don't make my own tempeh. My partner tough sometimes one. does, but it's tough. Okay. But I just buy it in blocks. Yeah. Marinate yeah. it overnight and, uh, you know, throw some chili oil and some hummus on that. We always have hummus kicking around. Oh, yeah, you have to. Good little snack. Yeah, and so I do a lot of that. And... Uh, you know, so today will be a good food day, not a cliff bar and takeout day. Which, uh, <laughs> hey, that's a good day, happen. too. Yeah. <laughs> um, wonderful. Um, and we ask this of all our guests. So uh, five for dinner. So dead or alive, who are five people that you would want to have dinner with? <clears throat> I love this question, by the way. It's all Rupesh. wasn't me. <laughs> well, I love this question. And so actually I had to think about this one for a while. Number one is Elon Musk, okay. because I just wrote a book about food on Mars with friends. Space bees. We would love to have, yeah, we would love to have dinner with Elon and say, look, you are going to die up there if you don't think about food. <laughs> and I know you want to die on Mars, but you don't want to die on Mars like that. So Elon Musk, if you are listening, Evan Fraser and I would like to have dinner and talk about food because <laughs> food on Mars is going to be hard. Um, also, I just think he's a bit of a visionary and i think what he's doing with spacex with tesla it's amazing i like people like that that just do crazy stuff and make it actually happen um number two is anthony bourdain oh, yeah. um one of the greatest disappointments of my life is i didn't get to meet anthony bourdain he was a massive influence on my writing style mm. and on how i approach food and one of the barriers to me is someone who to be honest comes from a really poor background and, you know we were fishermen i found food quite intimidating at first 
as you know in my 20s when i was at university there were all these rules and it was all like french fancy michelin star kind of stuff what i loved is anthony bourdain made me feel okay about not wanting to go to a fancy nine course dinner but to wanting to find a hole in the wall under a bridge and you know going and eating like barbecue or something he made me feel okay about that and so i just think he would have been a great guy to have dinner with mm. we'd have fought over the vegetarian thing surely but <laughs> we'd have we'd have put it aside for dinner i i just i really regret not getting to have dinner with him so mm. um number three catherine de medici um, powerful woman, you know, she, as, you know, Queen of France, she really brought French cuisine by, you know, she brought Italian influences into France, and she loved food, and, I mean, she was, she was stone cold in her, like, politics. I think she'd be a neat dinner. It's someone's scary dinner companion. Um, uh, number four, David Bowie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that one's just because... I I grew up with David Bowie blaring too loud, and my parents too good. About it. Yeah, he's too good. Yeah, and, and I was so sad when he died. And I'm like, I actually treasure that I was able to be alive during the same period of time in history that had Bowie in. Mm. So you think of human history, almost all of it, almost hundred percent of human history was Bowie free, and there was this tiny bit of Bowie. I am really <laughs> glad that I got to live in that time. I mean, and I, I worked, I worked in punk bars and goth bars all through grad cool. school, uh, mostly bartending, co-checking, doing that kind of stuff. And yeah, so Bowie to me, dinner with Bowie, I wouldn't even eat. I'd just sit there and talk music and just look at him. I mean, seriously. Oh man. Um, and then you're number five, and I must admit, I had to really struggle, and so I decided to take a different tack, not so food oriented. Uh, Jamila Jamil. Hmm. I love her. She uh, played uh, Tahani on The Good Place. Oh. And uh, she's, I don't know, right now the world, and, you know, I don't talk a lot about it in my day-to-day -day life, but uh, being GLBT mm. right now is tricky because the world is so polarized. And it seems like every day I turn on the media and someone that I respect you know, either politicians or celebrities is saying something just awful that I have to be like, oh, God, why is the world like this? They were so extreme and you're either this or that. Mm. And what I love about her is she uses her platform to just be nice, to just be nice about queer issues and be so open and be a force of good. And anyone in public being a force for good now, I really appreciate and. You know, for me as an educator, I really try and do that in my day-to-day -day life. I mean, I teach in a traditionally quite conservative area of the country. And, you know, my GLBT students don't always have it as easily as easy as they would at, say, a U of T. And I try and be very mindful of that. And they need to hear good things coming out of the media. They don't need Donald Trump, Vladimir Putin, the Pope. <laughs> sort of terrible voices saying you're awful mm. and i really you know i came up in a generation where we had to be very activist and what i really love is the younger generation is really carrying that forward in this beautiful way and i love it when i hear people with a platform who are you know 
actors, politicians who really, who own that. And where I'm like, I'd like to have dinner with you because I think you would be nice to me and it would be lovely. And we could talk about my partner. We could talk about things, you know, in the world and it would be good. Sorry, that one turned into a bit of a rant, but, uh, no, no. you know, I really do think I love it. even in the food movement right now, that polarization, that poison in our society is sort of sneaking in where there's the right wing and the left wing battling it out. And I'm like, please don't do this. Please. We all need to get along or we will all be equally dead. And the nice thing about being a physicist, physics does not care about politics. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I always say this to climate deniers. Although there are many, there's a lot less of them now. I'm like, look, the physics doesn't care. You can deny all you want. It's still <laughs> going to turn into a giant blast furnace that kills us all. Mm -hmm. So we all need to get along or we're all going to die. There's another great headline. It's you know, wonderful. he could engrave that one on, like, you know, Mount Rushmore. <laughs> Very good. That's a wonderful list. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And last question we have for you, besides the circle of life, so you were born and you're going to die, what else do you know for sure? Well, it's kind of interesting because you kind of picked it already. My entire credo and what has guided my career and everything I've done in life. And it's been a weird career. It's not, it's very atypical. I've bounced around, I've moved around the world. The one thing I know for sure, and I've spent quite a bit of time studying um, sort of the doctrines of Shinto and Buddhism and uh, the Bushido code that was used in Japan in the samurai period. And they have one rule, which is, you have to fully accept that you were going to die. And if you can do that, life doesn't get easier, but it kind of gets a little more, it gets rid of a bit of the uncertainty in that. And so the one thing I truly know is I am going to die. And so is everyone else. And if you really fully incorporate that into your day to day, not in a, I mean, now I did work in goth bars, but not that way, <laughs> but kind of in a like, if you wake up every morning and realize that the worst, most scary thing that will ever happen will happen to you, guaranteed, can't avoid it, it may have already, you know, it's basically it's like it's already happened, it could happen today. Once you accept that, you can live without fear. And fear is humanity's most horrible weakness because it makes us do terrible things. And doing the good thing is often so scary that we don't. And we stay in jobs we hate. We stay in relationships we hate. We stay in cities we hate because we're scared. We don't pivot away from the industry we know is killing the earth because we're scared. We keep voting for the person that says, you're scared and I'm gonna make you feel safe, but you're gonna stay scared because it's key to my whole plan. We keep going down that road. We don't do bold things. And, you know, my grandmother always used to say, life is wonderful if you have courage. Because if you accept that you could die at any time, what the, what the heck are you afraid of? I mean, there's nothing to be afraid of. You can take the leap. I mean, it doesn't matter. It profoundly, cosmically does not matter. All that matters is, are you making the world a better place? Are you doing the things you feel that need to come in the world? And I don't know, when I when I go out 
and I see people, you know, with a giant house and a giant pile of stuff, which is such a North American thing. You, you accumulate the pile of stuff, and you're scared because you don't have quite enough stuff. Like, you know, the day you die, none of that's going to matter at all. So why don't you just go do something mm -hmm. that actually matters to you? And this is how I've run my life. It's uh, led me to exciting things and to absolute total disasters, but it does not matter. <laughs> and I don't intend to change. And uh, I, the people I admire in history are the people who said, screw it. We're just going to try this. And maybe it works. Maybe it doesn't. But if you accept your own mortality, you can get on with your day and not be afraid of anything. I don't know uh, what else to say beyond that. That's a wonderful way to end this conversation. Um, thank you so much, Doctor, uh, for joining us today. Wonderful conversation. It was so much fun. You're a modern-day philosopher. So much, um, fun. so much fun. And, yeah, I mean, I, I, I hope uh, maybe when your new book comes out, we can uh, connect again and uh, maybe have another conversation. Oh, great fun to be here. I had a blast. So thank you so much for inviting me. Awesome. Thanks so much. Chat soon. Thanks so much. Bye.